Slips.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning, warning. We gotta stop us! They're gonna kill us all! See how the trouble you've started? Be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings. Time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part, you can't even passively take part, and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, by all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop, and you've got to win the day to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You called down the thunder, well now you've got it. You tell them I'm coming! We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyal? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God given place, and we shall not yield that right to any power on earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we take that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. Okay, uh, here we go. It's 4, 4 p.m. on Saturday afternoon. And welcome to Free Association. I'm going to take this one nice and easy uh, because I'm hanging on by a thread. Basically, my tech is uh, being temperamental, but uh, with a bit of luck, we might get through the hour without too many issues. And I'm at home, so I can just relax a little bit and and chill out. And I don't want to get I don't want to go dark with this one at all. I want to keep it light. As much as possible, which means, uh, I think that, uh, we'll start with a little bit of, re- of a review, a review of the last two years of shows because 
it, it needs to be celebrated, I think, that, uh, that I've done two years' worth of shows, apart from anything else. It's more than I was expecting. I, I don't know what I was expecting when I said I would do this show. When Karen, Karen pretty much insisted that I, that I speak to Rev Radio Management and do a show. Um, I said yes because it was Karen. I didn't know anything about Revolution Radio. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know anything really. And it took me a couple of months, I thinking about it, to come up with something that I thought was a reasonable show kind of format. And uh, we started out more as a, a philosophy show, kind of um, new thought was the primary thing that I was in, interested in a couple of years ago. So new thought is a religious movement that was around about the early part of the 19th century. And it's people like Thomas Troyd and um, it was kind of pragmatic, so it was kind of based on pragmatism. Um, William James was kind of interested in in what Thomas Troyd was doing. I think I'm just going to I'm going to keep it light by playing some Thomas Troyd. I think let me have a look. I'm just uh, because that's that, that's where I started. That's where I started the show, and it's where. It's where the heart of the show really is. So although I'm, I'm kind of covering geopolitics and I'm covering uh, um, other kind of world-based stuff now, it's moved, it's moved considerably for over two years. It has to be said, my head has moved. And uh, therefore, the show has moved with it. That's how I, I kind of just think of the show as, as me expressing whatever's in my mind. Whatever, whatever I'm thinking about at that moment in time is, is what the show turns into. So I try not to, to be too repetitive. Obviously it is going to be repetitive some of the time, but, uh, not all of the time. I try and keep it light, although I don't always manage to keep it light. Uh, the, uh, the Eugenics and Joni Mitchell show was a high point for me for last year. And that happened uh, I've been resisting doing a eugenic show for a long time. It's happened at the end of September, that particular show. I've been resisting doing a eugenic show for about two or three months at that point. Simply because of what, what it might, uh, what it might uncover. I didn't want to look at it. I really didn't want to look at it. But in the end, the end of September was the 100th anniversary of the second eugenics conference in New York in 1921. And I couldn't, I couldn't not do a show about it. It was so many things pointing in that direction that I just, I had to do the eugenics show to cover the, the 100th anniversary. And, uh, it, it, it took me to a, quite a dark place which I'm now kind of coming out of. And the winter was, the winter, I didn't go into a depression in the winter the way that I normally do. But the, the shows were quite dark for October and November at least. And then it got a bit bumpy. There was a bit of a bumpy ride. I didn't really do much over Christmas. 
in terms of shows. I was thinking about doing a show on Christmas Day itself, but in the end it just didn't happen. I wasn't really in the mood for it. I, would, I was just enjoying uh, watching movies or whatever it was I was doing. It's probably Teen Wolf or some, some TV show, Gotham maybe, something like that I was watching at the time. And uh, because because the show's moved in the last couple of years, it's it's kind of settled on the other end of the scale, if you like, from the philosophy to to geopolitics. Geopolitics is still kind of global origins of things, if you like. I don't really know how to describe it. I just I think of it as a a causal causal kind of drama triangle. Uh, the idea of the dry, drama triangle I did a show about as well comes from uh, transactional analysis, and I I look at I look at geopolitics at the moment as a as a big drama triangle. Basically, it's a psychological process that's playing out as a geopolitical process, and uh, on that note, I think I might play some some Alexander. Some uh, some of the Duran or Alexander, let me uh, because there is there's a couple of things that he put out that are worth worth watching over the last couple of days, and I haven't really caught up on what he's been putting out. So I did listen to it, but I wasn't really concentrating when I was listening. So let's do it again. It's a 15 minute, 13 minute video and a 20 minute video that I potentially could play. And I need to find some Thomas Ford as well while I remember. So let me do that as well. On YouTube probably. It's the best place for that. So the Edinburgh Lectures. I hope, I'm, I hope this connection's going to hold out when I share my screen. I really do. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. Spirit of Opulence. I played this before, but it, I think it, I think it's very good, so it's worth playing. It's worth playing again. Let me share my screen. And this is 50, about thirteen minutes, so nearly fourteen minutes. So that should now be begin to play so I'm going to double check with the chat room and make sure they can hear the video all <laughs> I'm offering is the truth Spirit of many of our problems in life are due to a misapprehension of the nature of our own power if we clearly realize that the creative power in ourselves is unlimited then there is no reason to limit the of what we can enjoy by means of this power. When we are drawing from the infinite, we need never be afraid of taking more than our share. That is not where the danger lies. The danger is in not sufficiently realizing our own richness and in viewing the externalized products of our creative power as being the true riches 
instead of the creative power of spirit itself. If we avoid this error, there is no need to limit ourselves in taking what we will from the infinite storehouse. And the way to avoid this error is by realizing that true wealth is in identifying ourselves with the spirit of opulence. We must be opulent in our thought. Do not think money as such, for that is only one means of opulence. But think largely, generously, liberally, and you will find that the means of realizing this thought will flow to you from all quarters, whether as money or as a hundred other things not to be reckoned in cash. We must not make ourselves dependent on any particular form of wealth or insist on it coming to us through some particular channel, for that is to impose a limitation and to shut out other forms of wealth and to close other channels. Instead, we must enter into the spirit of wealth. The spirit is life, and throughout the universe, life ultimately consists in circulation, whether within the physical body of the individual or on the scale of the entire solar system. Circulation means a continual flowing around, and the spirit of opulence is no exception to this universal law of all life. When this principle becomes clear to us, we shall see that our attention should be directed to the giving rather than the receiving. We must look upon ourselves not as a miser's safe to be kept locked for our own benefit, but as centers of distribution and the better we fulfill our function as such centers, the greater will be the corresponding inflow. If we choke the outlet, the current must slacken. A full and free flow can be obtained only by keeping it open. The spirit of opulence, the opulent mode of thought, consists in cultivating the feeling that we possess all sorts of riches which we can bestow upon others and which we can bestow liberally because by this very action we open the way for still greater supplies to flow in. Now, you may be saying to yourself, but I am short of money. I hardly know how to pay for the necessities. What have I to give? The answer is that we must always start from the point where we are. And if your wealth at the present moment is not abundant on the material plane, you need not trouble to start on that plane. There are other sorts of wealth still more valuable on the spiritual and intellectual planes which you can give. Therefore, you can start from this point and practice the spirit of opulence, even though your balance at the bank may be nil. Then the universal law of attraction will begin to assert itself you will not only begin to experience an inflow on the spiritual and intellectual planes, but it will extend itself to the material plane also. It is not money, but the love of money that is the root of evil. And the spirit of opulence is precisely the attitude of mind which is furthest removed from the love of money for its own sake. It does not believe in money. What it does believe in is the generous feeling which is the intuitive recognition of the great law of circulation, which does not in any undertaking make its first question, how much am I going to get by it, but how much am I going to do by it? And by making this the first question, the getting will flow in with a generous profusion, 
and with a spontaneous and rightness of direction that are absent when our first thought is of receiving only. We are not called upon to give what we have not yet got and to run into debt, but we are to give liberally of what we have with the knowledge that by so doing we are setting the law of circulation to work. And as this law brings us greater and greater inflows of every kind of good, so our outgiving will increase, not by depriving ourselves of any expansion of our own life that we may desire, but by finding that every expansion makes us the more powerful instruments for expanding the life of others. Live and let live is the motto of true opulence. Now, let us turn to beauty. Do we sufficiently direct our thoughts to the subject of beauty? I think not. We are too apt to regard beauty as merely a superficial thing and do not realize all that it implies. This was not the case with the great thinkers of the ancient world. For example, Plato describes beauty as the expression of all that is highest and greatest in the system of the universe. These great philosophers of old no superficial thing for would never have in their elevated beauty to a supreme place were only superficial. Therefore, we shall do well to ask what it is that these great minds found in the idea of beauty, which made it appeal to them as the most perfect outward expression of all that lies deepest in the fundamental law of being. It is because, rightly apprehended, beauty represents the supreme living quality of thought. It is the glorious overflowing of love's fullness and indicates the presence of infinite reserves of power behind it. It is the joyous profusion that shows the possession of inexhaustible stores of wealth, which can afford to be lavish and yet remain as exhaustless as before. Read correctly, beauty is the index to the whole nature of being. Beauty is the externalization of harmony, and harmony is the coordinated working of all the powers of being, both in the individual and in the relation of the individual to the infinite from which it springs. And therefore, this harmony conducts us at once into the presence of the innermost, undifferentiated life. Beauty is most immediately in touch with the deepest mysteries of life. It is the brightness of glory spreading itself over the sanctuary of the Divine Spirit. When viewed from without, beauty is the province of the artist and the poet and lays hold of our emotions and appeals directly to the innermost feelings of our heart. It speeds across the bridge of reason with such quick feet that we pass from the outmost to the inmost and back again in the twinkling of an eye. But the bridge is still there, and retracing our steps more leisurely, we shall find that viewed from within, beauty is also the province of the calm thinker and analyst. What the poet and artist seize upon intuitively, they elaborate gradually, but the result is the same in both cases. For no intuition is true which cannot be expanded into a rational sequence of intelligible factors, and no argument is true which cannot be condensed into that rapid suggestion which is intuition. 
Thus the impassioned artist and the calm thinker both find that it is only true beauty which proceeds naturally from the actual construction of that which it expresses. In other words, beauty is not something added on as an afterthought, but something pre-existing in the original idea, something to which that idea naturally leads up to. The test of beauty asks, what does it express? Is it merely a veneer, a coat of paint laid on from without? Then it is indeed nothing but a whited sepulcher, a covering to hide the vacuity or deformity which needs to be removed. But is it the true and natural outcome of what is beneath the surface? Then it is the index to superabounding life, love, and intelligence. Wherever, therefore, we find beauty, we may infer an enormous reserve of power behind it. In fact, we may look upon it as the invisible expression of the great truth that life power is infinite. And when the inner meaning of beauty is thus revealed to us, and we learn to know it as the very fullness and overflowing of power, we shall find that we have gained a new standard for the guidance of our own lives. We must begin today to use this wonderful process which we have learnt from nature. Having learnt how nature works, how God works, we must begin to work in like manner, and never consider any work complete until we have carried it to some final outcome of beauty, whether material, intellectual, or spiritual. Is my intention good? That is the initial question. For the intention determines the nature of the essence in everything. What is the most beautiful form in which I can express the good I intend? That is the ultimate question. For the true beauty which our work expresses is the measure of its power, its intelligence, its love. In a word, of the quantity and quality of our own life which we have put into it. Nothing is of so small account that it does not have its fullest power of expression in some form of beauty peculiarly its own. Beauty is the law of perfect thought, be it the subject of our thought some scheme affecting the welfare of millions, or a word spoken to a little child. True beauty and true power are the correlatives of one another. Kindly expression originates in kindly thought, and kindly expression is the essence of beauty, which, seeking to express itself ever more and more perfectly, becomes that fine touch of sympathy which is artistic skill, whether applied when working upon material substances or upon the emotions of the heart. Seen thus that the beautiful is the true expression of the good, from whichever end of the scale we look, we shall find that they accurately measure each other. They are the same thing in the outermost and the innermost, respectively. But in our search for a higher beauty than we have yet found, we must beware of missing the beauty that already exists. Perfect harmony with its environment and perfect expression of its own inward nature are what constitute beauty and our ignorance of the nature of the thing or its environment may shut our eyes to the beauty it already has. It takes the genius of a Van Gogh in painting, or a Whitman in words, 
to show us the beauty of those ordinary workaday figures with which our world is for the most part people, whose originals we pass by as having no form or attractiveness. Assuredly, the mission of every thinking man and woman is to help build up forms of greater beauty everywhere, be they spiritual, intellectual, or material. But to do so, we must enter the great realistic school of nature and learn to recognize the beauty that already surrounds us, even though it may have a little dirt on the surface. Then, when we have learnt the great principles of beauty from the all-pervading spirit which it reflects, we shall know how to develop the beauty on its own proper lines, without perpetuating the dirt and grime. And we shall know that all beauty is the expression of living power, and that we can measure our own power by the degree to which we have transformed our lives and the lives of those around us for the better. Okay, now, so that was uh, Thomas Troy. Uh, spirit of opulence. And I finally found Maharaji. Maharaji said, What are you doing here? I said, Maharaji, I can't stand my impurities. You've got to save me. I just can't stand it. I said, I'm not pure enough to do whatever it is I'm supposed to do. So he hit me on the head and he said, you will be. <laughs> well, in guru talk, that's big stuff, you know. <laughs> so I watched for immediate effects. <laughs> But not a hell of a lot happened. And a few months later, I said, Maharaji, you promised me. <laughs> and he pulled my beard and he laughed and he said, you will be. And a year and a half later, in 72, when he was throwing me out of India again, I said, look, Maharaji, you can't send me back to America. I'm still a mess. <laughs> and he said here eat this mango so I took that mango you know all these other devotees around and I wasn't going to share that mango with anybody <laughs> took that mango into the bathroom I would have eaten the seed if I could have. You know. I even thought if I plant the seed, I'll get more mangoes and then I can liberate others. You know. The mango. It's the mango. Mango baba. And nothing happened. But he said, see, he said to me, um, one day I said to 
one of his Indian devotees, I said, I'm really liable to screw up other human beings' lives, and I don't mind screwing up my own karma. I don't want to do it, but uh, I really don't want to screw around with other people's karma. And, uh, you know, he's legitimizing me and then sending me into the lion's mouth, and I may screw up, and I don't really want to hurt other people. And this man came back saying, Maharaj, he said, he'd never let you do anything wrong in America. And when I came before Maharaji, I said, Maharaji, can't you see how impure I am? See, and he looks. <laughs> and he looked up and down and all around. He says, I don't see any impurity. Well, he said something, and the translator said, Maharaji doesn't see any impurity. <clears throat> Later I learned, by the way, all the time I thought Maharaji was saying what the translator said, this is very far out, just an aside. See? <laughs> Turns out that Maharaji was one of the most foul-mouthed people in existence. He used to be known as he used to be known as Latrine Baba, and uh, he called everybody sister fuckers. And uh, he used to talk about us that way. And, but the Indian devotees didn't want to hurt our feelings, so they translate. He'd probably say, "Get that sister fucker out of here," and the translator would say, "Maharaji says you're looking very well." <laughs> really hard to know what the transmission was at any time and form. But at any rate, I came back to America in 72 with the clear protection that Maharaji had guaranteed I would, could do nothing wrong, which meant he was taking on my karma, which gave me license to do anything, you understand. And that was really the worst thing he could have said, because I would let myself go further and further out and out and out and say, well, I'll try that. Because after all, it's in the moment, and he said he'd never let me do anything wrong, so it must be protected. Now, it wasn't all, uh, I mean, it's not all quite that horrible, you know. Because what was happening to me was that the purity of the yearning of the people that came towards me, towards me, uh, my Boston accent, towards me, <laughs> elicited from me something that wasn't what I still was. of me something more than I was. In other words, somebody would come forward who really wanted God or really wanted liberation. And I just, that stuff in me, that worldly stuff just couldn't function. It was like their purity of their desire was a demand upon me that pulled out of me stuff that was higher than I was, if you will, or higher than I acknowledged myself to be because I was so busy feeling identified with my desires, with my lust, with my anger, with my unworthiness, with my all the stuff you're identifying with, for the most part. Not all of you at all moments. Okay, so a little bit of uh, Ram Das from 1976. Uh, 
in Aspen, I think you set up a centre in Colorado somewhere. I don't, I don't know enough about Ramdas really to to give you any biography. I would have to look it all up, but uh, certainly had some uh, interesting things to say. If nothing else, there's a there's the transmission of wisdom, for want of a better phrase, is uh, it's an interesting process. So it's not serious. It's not. Um, not prideful. It's uh, it's fun. It's funny. It's amusing. It's humorous. Wisdom wisdom has humour to it. And uh, I want to keep these things light. I've got Greg, Greg Braden as well. I'm looking at. Uh, I was looking at something earlier on that was sitting there. It was Greg Braden. It was about fifteen minutes long. That would have gone with the. Thomas Troy piece that I played, but it's uh, it's gone missing now since I've moved on. Um, so I can't play that. But uh, Greg Braden's an interesting man as well. Uh, he's used a lot of material that that Neville Goddard kind of kind of came up with. It's the same basic principle that's in a lot of manifestation books and in a lot of Law of Attraction type material, a lot of channeled material as well. Um, the the idea that you've got to be the thing you want to see in the world, you attract the thing that you are, and if you if you raise your level to the level of the thing that you want to have around you, and then sit in that place for long enough then it becomes a process of manifestation. So, going back, about, I'll, I'll talk now. I'm, talk, I'm going to talk for a little while because a couple of things have come up this week that, that I've forgotten about. Um, because I've been starting this new job, we've been in training, we've been talking about goals and uh, why the, the why question, why are you here? When you're doing telesales, you need, a, you need an a why you need you need some kind of purpose for being there, and mine is to um, develop a healing center. Now I usually think of myself as a as a walking healing center, which sounds a bit strange, but but that's the way I do it because everywhere I go, and I'm not and I'm not I'm not meaning healing in a kind of everything's broken kind of sense. I'm meaning healing as a, a recognition of the wholeness of everything. So it's fine to see things as broken for a while. That will work if you if you're in the mode of fixing things. You'll get into the habit of seeing things that are broken, which is fine. That's one way of looking at the world. And then you then you look for a fix when you see the thing that's broken. But it's it's probably more accurate to say that nothing's broken, nothing needs fixing, everything is an expression of the environment that it's in. So everything, you've got to think in kind of systems, so everything becomes an emergent property of the system. So I'm I'm an emergent property of 1965 and the northeast of England, because that's where I was born. And when I was born, 
So the culture at that time and the experience of my parents and my grandparents is what produced me, more or less. I mean, and the the wider, like my cousins and my aunties and uncles as well, were part of that process. So all of those people had an input into my life and I'm kind of an accumulative effect of all of those people. And it's the same with... Um, we're kind of manifesting a healing center. You've, it's got to be an emergent property of the environment. So you create the environment in which whatever, whatever healing process can exist. So a recognition of wholeness, let's call it. So create the conditions in which it's easy to see the wholeness rather than the broke rather than brokenness and then I just send out a vibe I can't really explain it I send out a vibe for the right people to come into that process and uh, I started thinking about the healing center uh, about three four years ago when I was living in Hewith in Gateshead and I actually picked out a building that I wanted to turn into a healing and psychotherapy centre, I'm kind of calling it. So group group therapy rooms and and one-on-one counselling rooms and that sort of thing. That's kind of the idea. Um, so I picked out this, this building, which is about £350,000, which at the time I was living in pretty much poverty on on benefits. So on welfare benefits. So there was no way that that was going to manifest in, in an immediate kind of time scale. It's a long-term project. And I, I'd kind of forgotten about it, but but when when I was asked, why am I here, in the, in the job training that I'm doing, what came out of my mouth was, I want to, I want to form a, a healing centre. So that that is still there in the back of my mind. It, it had been forgotten about. It had gone gone subconscious and been forgotten about. But the process is there. The process is happening, and it might be a it might be a ten year process. It might be a five year process. I don't know. If I'm if I'm attempting to get three hundred and fifty thousand pounds together, my reckoning is it's about a seven year process. Maybe slightly less depending on how much commission I make doing this job and how long I stay in this job. Um, the, the only the only viable way that I've got of, of producing £350,000 is, is by earning commission in this job. So that's the only way that I can manifest a healing centre. At the moment, at least. There might, there might at some point become a, another route for that money to appear. I'm not going to rule out anything. There's always a possibility that something else might materialise. But um, for the moment, it looks like the the channel that it's coming through is this job and the commission in this job. So I'm gonna I'm gonna aim for fifty thousand pounds a year. Some of which will be for me, and some of which will be for the healing centre. So twenty thousand will be for me, 
20,000 I'll put in the bank for the healing center and 10,000 for contingencies, let's say. And we'll see how far we get. I don't know. I might be able to just rent some space. All I've got to do really is rent some event space or meeting space. And that, in effect, is a healing center. It doesn't need to be a building. It can just be a rented room somewhere. Uh, the, the building makes it a bit more permanent and a bit more visible. But the, the first stage is just to rent, rent a room for an event, which uh, which I could do at the the Literature and Philosophy Library, which is just around the corner from where I live. Or there's another, there's a, a healing spiritual center in um, Wall's End, which is which is literally the end of Hadrian's Wall. Um, uh, there's a place called the Vault on Station Road, which I could easily rent a room at. Uh, I did go and talk to him, talk to the guy who runs it, about five or six years ago, and I was go actually more, maybe seven years ago, and I kind of made a choice between going back into he- doing healing stuff and workshops and philosophy. So I ended up at the philosophy groups rather than at the vault healing center at that particular point. But now might be the time to go to go back to that particular center and see see what I can do there. Um, it could potentially be a place to do the radio show from as well because they've got they've got Wi-Fi there. I could do I could potentially do something on a Saturday afternoon and broadcast a broadcast it as part of the radio show uh, I don't know what the logistics of that will be but I'll, uh, I'll think about it and see see what we can do and then that way if there's nobody shows up I just do a standard radio show and if there's people show up for the workshop then we do a little bit of a workshop and have a breakout group for an hour at the end for people, anybody who wants to stay and have a discussion for the radio show but that obviously will cost money for room rental. So I think it's twenty pounds an hour for their room rent for their main room. And I don't at the moment I don't have twenty pounds an hour. But when I get paid from this job, I will have twenty pounds for an hour. So I could potentially do that at that point. So I have to make sure that I get get through my probation and get some commission earned. And then, and then I can start thinking about all of these things. So this is all speculation, but it's um, it's it's all right to speculate. There's nothing wrong with speculating. It, it keeps things clear in my head if I'm speculating a little bit. It gets things a bit more clear for me just talking about it. So there's also there's a place in town by the high level bridge, which is a office space. That they, that they rent, that would be a lease, though, so it would have to be, that would be a lease on a lease on an office, which I would use as uh, event space. So that's something that I've been thinking about as well, because that building's been in my head for a little while. So, again, with this, with the work and, and commission, I should be able to afford to do that as well, which will give me, give me a place to base myself, and uh, can do a few things after work maybe there and the weekends I don't want to overcommit though that's the trouble I'm, all of these things are grand plans and 
nice ideas, but they they take a bit of commitment. And at, at the moment, I'm having as much as much as it takes to to take in the training that we're doing. So um, I want to do one thing at a time, one thing at a time. Let's not get carried away with anything. Uh, and let's go back to Ram Das for a little while, for the last ten minutes, because I was enjoying that, and it set me off on a on a train of thought. So we'll see what he has to say. Again, this is Ram Das from 1976. But all the time, This is very interesting, by the way. I've never given this kind of a lecture in years now. There's something about the intimacy of this room that's making it into a hanging out scene for me. You know? <laughs> Usually I get up and I, I go up till I'm practically stiff and I start in God is light, you know, or breathe into your heart. And I just start to take us all up. And we can go up later. I mean, that's okay with me. But I, I do that. You couldn't know what you're laughing at. Beautiful laugh. But you see, I'm caught just like you're caught in the predicament that we are in the world and we are in an incarnation and we have babies and jobs and world and parents and karma that we've been we're working out and we can't sort of say, hey, just hold it, you know, don't move until I get enlightened because <laughs> you know, I don't want to hurt you. You know, you got to stay in the stew and keep working. And it's impure, but what can you do? It's, that's just the way it is. The only added burden that I had was the people looking towards me to liberate them. And what a horror for people to look towards you to liberate them when you can't liberate yourself. You know, it's like... The statement is made in India, if you're caught in quicksand, you can't free another. Or if you're bound in chains, Ramakrishna says, you can't untie the hands of another. And I kept saying to everybody, watch it. I mean, I kept, you know, giving a declaimer. You know, the management takes no responsibility. I, I'd say, you know, I am not enlightened. I'm not realized. I am a teaching. I'm not a teacher. You know, I'm full of hang-ups, just, I'm one of us, just talking to us. Just take me for what it's worth. If it doesn't touch your heart, forget it, it's probably phony. Okay? And I said that every lecture. I just kept saying it again and again, and that sort of got me off the hook. Or sucked everybody in deeper, whichever way you want to look at it. The power of apparent honesty. Around 1970, this is, this is six. 
guess it was the summer of 74. I was at Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado, giving a course in the Bhagavad Gita. Now, it was a great summer. There was no doubt about that. We all had a fascinating time. There was a great spark between Trungpa Rinpoche and me, and it was all like a tennis match. And <laughs> I understand from Rolling Stone, he referred to me as a, an arrogant, confused charlatan going in the wrong direction. <laughs> That's a true mark of respect I take from <laughs> Well, it was a pretty strange summer. And by the time I had finished it, I had decided that I had taken enough people down the primrose path and I couldn't stand it anymore and I was going to get out. It was just too heavy. I just felt that what had happened was, you see, I didn't understand, and I still don't understand. I had no idea who Trumper is, but he was obviously a tantric teacher of some sort. And I couldn't quite assess how far out tantra gets. And um, a lot of the things that were going on in the Institute were... Uh, I was having to keep swallowing my nice Jewish middle-class righteousness and say, well, it's for the greater good and he's just burning stuff out of people and it's all great teaching. And it might have been, it might be, it may be well, I don't know. But I was getting uneasy because I was going beyond where my heart was clicking. It wasn't clicking for me. And I can get pretty far out when I'm working with an individual, but it's got to always click along the way now. I understand what that means. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's like there are a lot of things that by the book you'd say, oh, no, don't do that. But at some moment it'll click and it's okay to do it, while a moment later it wouldn't be all right to do it or a moment before it wouldn't have been all right to do it. And the scene wasn't clicking for me. So I decided to go back to India. I don't know why. My guru was dead. And though I intellectually said... Dead Schmidt, where can he go? You know, it's like he's just dropped his body. You know, it's no big deal. Because in 1972, one day, I was sitting in the courtyard opposite him. He was on the other side. And there were all these devotees sitting around him, rubbing his feet. And they'd give him apples and he'd throw them at apples and he'd talk to them. And it was that kind of loving, bhakti, delicious, rich kind of hanging out with the guru. It was, it's a, if you've ever been in it, you know what I'm talking about. And if you can, it's like a, um, it's a great night by the fire where you're all cuddly and it's really soft and loving and warm. And the only thing is it's all connected with liberation, right? Not just sensual gratification. So it's a little different quality, but other than that, it's that same feeling of at homeness and the time stops and you're just in a delicious space and I was sitting across watching all this going on and saying boy they're all hung up in his form you know I don't really care if I never see him again I love him I love him tremendously but that isn't it I'm not going to spend the rest of my life rubbing his feet 
I mean, that isn't what this is all about. I have to go beyond seeing it in him and not in me. In other words, the guru, it's called Guru Kripa, is the method of pursuing or following or devotion to the guru. But ultimately, every method is a trap, and you've ultimately got to consume the method. You've got to go beyond the method. And ultimately, the way it works is I remember sitting with Maharaji one night, late in the afternoon. It was just sort of sunset. It was a beautiful, quiet moment in the temple. And um, I sat, and he was talking to me and throwing things and patting me and doing all the kind of stuff he does. And I decided I'm not going to be sucked in by it. That's like... Um, that's the melodrama on this plane, and everybody's always sucked in by it, but I'll forget it. I'm going to focus on my third eye, and I'm just going to meditate. Screw him. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to look. You know, I won't respond. He can throw the apples. I'm not going to catch him. Nothing. <laughs> so I focused on my third eye, and a minute later, this Shakti started to pour into me, and I started to go like this, and he went over on his side and pulled his blanket over his head and he started to snore. <laughs> and suddenly the universe started to fall away from me and then he sat up and he said, and I was getting stiff and going into samadhi and he said to the translator that was there, he said, ask Ramdas how much money Stephen makes. Okay. And I heard that. It's like uh, the plane has just left Aspen. It's just lifting up over the mountains. And you see somebody down in the airport waving. You know, it's from that distance, that kind of thing. I heard, ask Ram Dass how much... And I thought, oh, wow, you know, where's that coming from? <laughs> and I heard the, I heard the uh, devotee say, oh, Baba, he, I can't bother him. He's meditating. And he says, ask him, ask him. Never mind, he's meditating. <laughs> And the guy was so apologetic, and I had to come down. You know, you've got to turn the plane around, go into the landing pattern, and you finally land. And I land, and I came down, I finally said, I said, $30,000. And then I went back up. I wasn't going to win. <laughs> and I began to see that he was like a set of infinite doorways, and that if you grabbed on the physical plane, that's what you got. And if you didn't get hung up on that, you got the astral one. You started to meet Shiva, or Hanuman, or whoever. And if you didn't get hung up in that one, which is very seductive, by the way, because it's fun to have Christ walk into the room or, you know, Shiva dance for you or the Divine Mother coming off of her breast or something like that. But if you can say, yeah, baby, that's fine, but, but that's not what I want, you know, I'm going for broke. And that too, tatuamasi, all that stuff, keep going, you know, step aside, please, here I go. You just keep going through the doors and you... You keep going beyond guru. You go beyond the dualism. And it's a method of merging in which you finally close in. And then you understand what Ramana Maharshi said when he said God, guru, and self are the same thing. That it's just a vehicle. All right. All right. So that, at that point, we're going to stop. But God, guru, and self are the same thing. That, that's a good place to stop, I think. Uh, so you're listening to Free Association, I'm here every Saturday, uh, it's Revolution Radio, which is listener supported, so we appreciate it if you can make a donation, um, that if you can if you can give us $5 a month or, or just a, a one-off donation, it, can, it helps to keep the servers running, and uh, we do appreciate it, if, and if you want to do that, you can go to freedomslips.com, and there's a a donation tab on the menu 
Or you can buy a coffee cup or a, a sweatshirt or whatever. Just do what you can. Do what you can when you can. And uh, you can support in other ways as well, just by being in the chat room or whatever. But uh, it's all it's all appreciated. We do we do like what what people are, are doing for us. And uh, there's two studios running 24 hours a day, more or less 24 hours a day, and there's some good material on that. There's some material you'll like, there's some material you'll, you'll hate, but uh, it's all free speech, and that's kind of the point. So um, you can find me on Spotify, on uh, Free Association Radio Show on Spotify, or Free Association Radio Show Podcast and Roundtable on Spotify. And on Google Podcasts and on Player FM and all those places where you can get podcasts. So I've now got to download last week's show and upload it to the podcast because I'm, I'm late because I've been working. But uh, I'll get there in the end. And uh, and so so will everybody else. And there's nothing broken. That's all you need to remember is nothing is broken. Nothing needs fixing. It is what it is because there's something behind it that's manifested it that way so let go and let God I don't know any other way to, to express that but uh, it's all there it's all there for a reason I don't understand it I'm not, not even going to try to understand it I'm just going to let go and let God for the moment at least um, thanks for listening and uh, I'll see you next week Barbara Jean Lindsay, The Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Hi, I'm Bill Johnson. Some consider my efforts to be an underground law school. I am not an attorney, and I do not give legal advice. I teach. That's lawful and legal. Consider yourself served. You are to appear Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, Studio A. My forte? Foreclosure and contract law. Grab your legal pad and pen. Learn a broad spectrum of law spanning administrative, criminal, family, tort, and federal law. Fools and losers cling to old cases. I dissect and comment on the latest rulings that control the courts. Don't be a loser. And if you don't appear, you will be held in contempt. Are you interested in the paranormal? Murder mystery? Real natural law? Do you enjoy interviews with amazing guests? Then join Crypt Rick every Monday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on 
Revolution Radio. Studio A, freedomslips.com. Crypt this, I think, thank you. Welcome to the crypt. <laughs> what the heck is the truth, Jihad? Hey, I'm Kevin Barrett, host of Truth G. 